Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. Since the launch of my podcast, I've also recently released a number one best-selling book called One for the Road, which can be purchased via Amazon. It covers my own personal story and also offers lots of valuable tips on how you too can learn to kick alcohol out of your life for good. I really hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, share and leave a review. Our amazing sponsors for this season are Tweak Life. Do you want to make a positive change to your mental, physical or financial health and not sure where to start? Tweak Life have brought together all areas of well-being in a free, easy-to-use website. You can find their link in the show notes and on my bio via my Instagram, at SoberDave. My guest today on One for the Road is a number one best-selling author of the incredible book, Alcohol Stole My Mum. He is also a qualified counsellor and has been working in the field of addiction since 2006. It gives me huge pleasure to introduce my very special guest today, the truly wonderful John Taylor. So hello John, welcome to my podcast One for the Road. Um, we originally met a few weeks ago um, on a Nakoa uh, live and hearing your story was so powerful for me uh, and I really resonated with a lot of what you said because um, we come from a similar era. So I thought it'd be a really, really good thing for you to come on today. So thank you for agreeing to record this with me today. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Dave. And thanks for inviting me and congratulations on all your work as well. So, yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm excited. You know, I've done a few of these, but yeah, thanks for having me, Dave. Thank you, mate. And uh, it's nice to have someone on with a similar kind of accent. (laughs) (laughs) Cockney podcast, yeah. Well, well, yeah, the Cockney podcast. But I'm actually not Cockney, you are. Um, (laughs) But I I come from Croydon, as most people know. But yeah, I I get related to like a good old Croydon Barra boy half the time. But do you know what? When uh, this goes out in the States, people kind of like it, the old uh, accent. So it goes down well. But like listening to your story is really powerful, John. And um, growing up as a child of a alcoholic is a really, really important um, subject to cover. So it'd be really good if you feel comfortable um, to wind it back to what it was like growing up for you and your first memories. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny when, when I um, it was only when I started writing the book that I. I realized it was actually a love story, the book, to my mum, because my first actual memories, Dave, was, you know, how much I loved my mum. Just like, you know, this son-mother relationship. She was beautiful, like, you know, just absolutely adored her. Um, in fact, the first um, the first uh, chapter of the book is called The Special One, because she always called me The Special One. and and um, as a kid, I was I was very very intelligent, but like really 
And there, there was a Leo Sayer song. It was the biggest song of the 70s, When I Need You. And I used to um, memorise that and sing it to my mum every night before she used to go to bed, before I used to go to bed. So it was this sort of love story. And then I would say, and then, like I say in the book, at, at the age of eight, I um, I didn't really know. I knew my dad was like, a, my dad was like, had a reputation when he was one of the hardest men in the West End. So I knew he had violence in him. And I knew my mum, there was, she probably had a drink problem, but I wasn't aware. And then I come home from school one day and my mum was lying in bed, beaten up badly by my dad. And and they call it like, an, it, it, it was like an incited incident, Dave. You know, like in a film or a book, they call it an inciting incident. And it was the inciting incident. And it was only years and years later when I was having, when I got sober and I was having therapy, that I actually shut down, you know, from emotionally at eight years old. It was actually around, because I'm a big Arsenal fan, it was actually the same time as the uh, 1978 FA Cup final. It was Arsenal, which I was all excited. I'd come home from school and my mum was lying in bed beat up. So, and and I would say what I've worked with um, adult children of alcoholics, you know, all my life. I've been a like counsellor and families counsellor for 16 years. There's probably, it's so powerful when you're growing up in a sort of family of an alcoholic that I'm probably this part of me that's still shut down from that incident. I can go back there. So just to give you an example I could feel fear. Someone, I could walk out in the street and someone could shout at me and I could go fear and I, I'd go straight back to that bedroom where I'm looking at my mum, even today. It's almost like a form of PTSD, if you like. Um, so that's what it was about. And then after that, it it was almost like the cat was out of the bag and and the violence got worse. The abuse got worse. The the trauma got worse, and that that's kind of like how the story, um, you know, started. You know, from the age of eight. So yeah, and it was like looking at it, Dave. It, it's like you, you become an eight year old in this sort of navigating this war zone. You know, so you're eight year old. You got to keep everyone sweet as well, like everyone happy. You know. I've got to hide my mum's drinking. I've yeah. got a protector for my dad. Um, and um, and also, you know, so I'm eight years old trying to run the house, trying to, you know, navigate it, you know. Um, so I'd come home from school, my mum would be drunk, and I'd be trying to sober her up oh, before my dad so. get home. Yeah. You know, trying to – I remember once saying, oh, look, I'll make dinner. You go and have a lie mm-hmm. down. You know, you sober up, please. You know, and these memories, I'd forgot about all of this. And obviously it brought it all up, Dave. And and this is at eight or nine, you know. But the bottom line is I could never get my mum sober, you know, and and I kind of like failed, you know. Um, So I had all them sort of um, them feelings of failure. And also as a young boy, you know, the feelings of being the special one. Well, I wasn't a special one anymore. And so I become sort of feeling unlovable. You know, if my mum chose drink over me, what does that make me? Um, yeah. So that's kind of like the beginning of the story, Dave. You had to grow up really early, didn't you? You know, like 
And it probably started before that as well. You were aware of it, but at eight years old, what happened to your mum then? You you then stepped up, didn't you, and thought, right, I need to protect my mum because you loved her so much. And at eight years old, that's that's yeah. a real big responsibility, isn't it? And I, you know what you say about um, I couldn't make her sober up. You know, it, it's down to your mum for a start. That you know, like I can really feel the sense of. Um, failure you felt then yeah i mean look i I, this is one thing about addiction and the families the hardest thing for families to come in um to come into my service and i I say to them look in someone in addiction no one can stop someone in addiction it's got to come from them you know i use the analogy you know there's seven billion people in the world and seven billion people can't stop someone using and drinking it's got to come from them. And um, and it's probably directly or indirectly why I went into, you know, I trained as an addictions counsellor, but I trained, I specialised in families straight away because I, I probably realised at the age of 10 when, when we was taken away from my mum that I couldn't stop her. You know, I tried everything. And then even when, I mean, I think, we had 27 years of not living with her and she still drank. She actually, you know, God bless her, you know, she drank herself to death in the end. You know, she had alcoholism on her death certificate. Um, mm. Yeah. So I, uh, due to combustion or multiple organ failure, as as normally happens. I mean, with alcoholism, they always say, you know, people say um cirrhosis of the liver yeah you know actually it's not because if if alcoholics get to cirrhosis of the liver they've actually done well because normally it's another organ that kills them beforehand you know Mm. because we know with alcoholism it goes through like multiple organs and, and normally it's multiple organ failure that kills them and that's what happened to my mum yeah yeah, my um, son's stepdad died. He fell and hit his head uh, and bled out. But um, when they did an autopsy, his esophagus had exploded as well. So they didn't know what came first. But people don't realise, you know, the amount of effects that alcohol has on their organs. It goes for all of them. There's a video I share with my clients that it starts from when it goes in through the lips you know, and, and the journey it travels down the body and through the organs that the damage is collateral damage, you know, and it's scary. And this is why I try and educate people about that. Because when I was drinking, I was like, oh, I've got a pain in my side. Is that my liver? Is that it for me? And and that's the story we tell each other, isn't it? Oh, without a doubt. I remember going on alcohol training years ago and it, I know it goes through the li- the liver. The why the liver gets it, it goes through the liver twice. It mm. goes through it once and then comes through it again. Also, the brain as well. Yeah, I mean, people. Alcoholism for me is, you know, my my family, my family of origin, Dave. I mean, I, I talk about you know a lot in the sort of book um, about my family of origin and my my family of origin. My mum and dad's side is either. Korsakoff's, which is wet brain syndrome, dementia yeah. through alcoholism. You know, I I went up to um, 
in at the end of my drinking, I was really unwell. I, you know, I, I was mentally, I was on the on the edge of a of a mental breakdown. I was having panic attacks. I was really bad, and I went up to the um, Royal Free Hospital in London, and my uncle. I went up there with my dad. My uncle was in there with Korsakoff's wet brain syndrome, and and I I remember this is how bad it is. It, the doctor had said it, my uncle had fallen off his bed and had really damaged himself. We we think he's broke his ribs, but we're not sure because he can't tell us. Yeah. So we can't give him painkillers. And I remember cornering this doctor because I knew that there was something wrong and cornering him, getting him to explain what Korsakoff's, what people can drink themselves, you know, and, and he was looking at me thinking, and, and I now realize that, you know, that's what was happening to me, if you like, my mm. cognitive mental state. So, you know, I think now and now, you know, with like the work you're doing, people are realizing that you don't have to go that far with this alcoholism. Mm. My story is either family members, you know, hanging themselves, killing themselves, you know, prostitution, um, you know, uh, Korsakoff's, you know, losing families, you know, that is my family of origin, you know, and, and it's kind of like why I do believe I've been given a gift from somewhere, Dave, getting sober, mm. that it's just to tell the story, like you said, yeah. tell this story of what, and also, Dave, alcoholism, we know that whatever figures you, you uh, read in the UK, alcoholism kills 10 to 15 times more as a drug than all the other illicit drugs put together. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Um, you know, and, and I often talk about that, the, the way it's glamorized um, in society. Um, and it's hard. You know, like, you know, the mantra we're meant to say now we're sober and now we're trying to do the work we're doing is I'm not anti-alcohol, but blah, 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 blah. It's really hard to say that when you get messages coming into your email box and DMs saying, you know, my husband died um, Friday, age 38, uh, and he's left three children. You know, like, it's hard not to actually hate it, to be fair. But John, I really, um, I really feel um, I want to hear how it was for you growing up, seeing a woman that you love so much go for her own journey of alcoholism. How how did that make you feel, mate? It's a really, really good question. I mean, I, I just incredible sadness that you know it. it you know the title of the book, like alcohol stole my mum. It's just really this. powerful, that, mate. That's a powerful um, title. Says it all. Yeah. Just real sadness, like this This woman that I know was a beautiful, beautiful woman. I remember my dad, who was, God bless him, you know, quite an angry man. And I remember he used to say about my mum that she would never say a bad word about anyone. You know, she really had this sort of, you know, and it was really sad, it, you know, as the drink come and, you know, with drink, resentments and anger, you used to see the resentments and anger and just real sadness that, that what alcohol done to this beautiful woman, you know, mm. and and how 
you know, I was sort of like um, robbed, yeah. you know, of this sort of um, this relationship and what yeah. it done. And also the, the sort of, I mean, my book is about, you know, generational addiction, you know, what she was given, alcoholism. And this is why, you know, there's sort of, my, you know, my opinion, you know, alcoholism is a mental illness because, you know, all, and, and people get, you know, people have got their opinions, you know, that you're not of sound, you know, in, you know, it's about insanity. You're not of sound mind. I mean, the thing that traumatized me up the most as a little boy, alcohol, the thing that I used to help to fix me, that helped with my trauma, was the same thing that traumatized me up. Yeah. This is why it's so evil. My mum, she, her dad was an alcoholic, a, yeah. you know, witness. Would it, she used the same thing, the generational, like, handed down. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But do you know what, John? It's interesting that you say that because it's, it's almost like learned behavior as well. Like, I believe it's a mental illness and I believe there's a genetic link, but I, I also believe that you're not just given that gene, you know, it's can, can skip. But learn behavior, and also it was a coping strategy for you to deal with your feelings because when you had that those feelings from such a young age, it's like how are you meant to deal with them if you don't understand them, you know? And also, how old were you when you started to drink? I was 15. Oh. I was 15. You know, whatever, like there's all different opinions. I think the thing we 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 will everyone's got to agree this coping mechanism and this escapism yeah you know this you know you don't um escapism driven by low self-esteem um which is interesting because it's only when i've worked you know with sort of people in recovery who have got clean and sober they will recognize or they will admit you know it was low self-esteem i mean you don't set about trying to destroy yourself with addiction if you like yourself you yeah. know i think that the low self-esteem and the escapism and when i first picked up i had all this stuff like you know all this trauma you know all going on still trying to hide my mum's alcoholism like we we lived in london she lived in scotland she was just enough away far enough away when people would ask about my mum, because especially in the 80s, it was very, very unusual. It probably still is that, why is John living with his dad? Where's his mum? So I kind of like stuck out like a sore thumb. And then when people would ask about my mum, I'd change the subject, you know. Oh, you know, so I had that shame. It was almost, and almost the thing, Dave, of you know, didn't you? You know that my mum. So I had all that shame. I had all that trauma from childhood that was buried. So when I picked up a drink at 15, you know, you talk about escapism and um, and all that coping, self-medication. Yeah. When I picked up a drink at 15, it took all of that away. Yeah. It was beautiful. And it, and it leveled up the playing field. Mm. I was actually okay. Um, I was quite um, – I used humour a lot. So – all of a sudden, I was like um, a centre of attention down yeah. the pub, the Joker. Yeah. Accepted you know, I, as well. Yeah. You, you, you fitted somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. Fitted, you know. 
big football fan as well, went to football, you know. Then I started working um, and then I could go in pubs. So it was like that, you know, natural um, like progression. And and the thing is, the interesting thing is, you know, I, I made sure that I would never be like my mum because I, you know, I always worked, you know, I, I, I trained. I, I used to, I always say this, I became like really fit physically. So I used to run marathons, Dave. And I used to say, the reason I used to run marathons was to prove I wasn't an alcoholic. You know, mm-hmm. that sort of like, well, I can't have a drink problem. I'm going on 10, 15 mile runs. Yeah. You know, that sort of justification. And what happened to me, um, Dave, was that I, <clears throat> I never lost anything like materialistically because I never missed a day's work. You know, I had a young family. I had the two cars I had the house I had all of this I had the money but what I'd done was I lost my mind you know the alcoholism lost took my mind away and and I I do believe that was the only thing that would have stopped me drinking and having my two young girls as well because my girls were two and three and um I remember looking at them and thinking I don't want to give them what was given me and yeah. and in a way, just skipping back about my mum, I used my mum as a sort of like, I used her to say, look, mum, you know, I actually, when I was in treatment, Dave, I wrote her a letter telling her that I was in recovery now and, you know, I understand what you went through. But I used my mum as a motivation. Yeah. I didn't want to pass this down to my girls. So, yeah, and, and I used alcohol for 18 years. and. And like they say with the um, the illness of, of addiction, Dave, it, it got worse and worse and worse. I mean... Yeah, it's progressive, isn't it? So you yeah. don't start off with um, a litre of vodka. It's progressive. And this is why I get fascinated by exploring how we go with it. You know, we start off at young... You know what you say about 15 and, and you being accepted? It's like you're telling my story. Because my mum left um, at 14, you know, and I was living with my dad and my dad was struggling because he all of a sudden had to do the dinners and go to work and try and do the washing and the iron and, and all that. And I become extremely um, practical around things. So I would turn my own trousers up at 14 and try and sew the bottoms and, you know, do the ironing and wash up and, and and do all the household chores to try and take it off my dad's shoulders, you know. But I know that in later life, that put me in good stead for a lot of things, yeah. you know, because uh, i become resilient. But I'm really interested, John, again, going back a little bit, how did your mum come to live in Scotland then and you come to live w- with your dad, especially as he was, like, violent towards your mum? So what happened was my mum my mum and dad were both actually Scottish. My dad came down to London when he was eight, um, to the West End. But my mum and dad actually in the sixties were ten pound poms. So they went over to Australia um and paid you ten pounds and, and went over there and worked and met over there. And we come back to uh, live in London. I was actually born in Australia, funny oh, enough. Oh. Come back. So in the story they we come back, we live in London, 
it starts off, you know, all the violence. So what they do is what what which is a great thing of of an alcoholic to, to do. They decide we'll have a new start. So we go back to Australia, you know, called a geographical. You know, you, you take the uh, the only problem is with an alcoholic. You know, you might go to another place, but you take your head with you. Yeah. So my mum's alcohol alcoholism was taken to Australia. So in the book, it gets really bad over there. My dad leaves. Um, so my mum, it, it gets really dark in Australia. We come back with my mum and uh, me and my little sister, and we go and live in Scotland. And, I mean, it gets really bad in Scotland because whatever you said about my dad, he was a protective factor with the kids. Mm. He wasn't a protective factor with my mum, so there was no protective factor now. So we went to Scotland, Dave, and we were living. So there was two kids. So I was eight, eight or nine. My sister was four or five. We're living in a house with three alcoholics, with my mum her brother, my Uncle James, and a, a wonderful man called Whiskey Ben, my granddad. So you can imagine. And and that's where I was, um, I think the reading you heard, I mean, literally, there was just men everywhere. The, the place stunk of, like, urine, piss everywhere. I was talking yesterday, Dave, it was really good how you was talking about, like, like anchors, like, in your life. So anchors, were, for me, were like football at three o'clock, you know, in them days, all football matches. So it was either watching Arsenal, watching mm. um, Celtic, um, top of the pops a bit later on Thursday night. And then, yes, yeah, seven o'clock. Yeah, yeah. And then what we were talking about, which was hilarious, was um, Noel Edmonds swap shop Saturday yeah. morning. Yeah, um, I used to love that. Yeah. And it was funny how you identified because Tiz was. It was just too manic for me. And it was later on, you know, when everyone was getting into the young ones. Yeah. I, I couldn't, I, I thought, I don't like this. Because the thing is, the young ones was really violent. They were yeah. going around. I thought, that's like my house, you know. Yeah. Um, Started off with Vivian putting a, a leg on the bonnet of an Anglia. But I can really relate to that because there's triggers, isn't it? There's trigger points. And that represents chaos to you. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, violence. I mean, I, um, just this sort of thing of, you know, I used to go around like mate's house or, 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 and I remember in Australia, I tell in the book, I went around a friend's of mine house and they were having a barbecue and the mum and dad were like having a bit of banter. And I remember looking at them thinking, this is, they were joking. And I remember they give each other a big hug and they were kissing. It was a bit, and I thought, that's strange. Mm. You know, a mum and dad showing love to each other. Mm. That's really strange because that wasn't my experience, you know. So it got really bad in Scotland. And what happened was, I, you know, you say about this over-responsibility. I actually wrote my dad a letter at 10 because what had happened, I mean, I'm not going to go in. It got really dark. Um, my mum got involved with a man up there. 
you know, it, it, you know, it's in the book. It, it got really, really dark. You know, the kids, I mean, if social service, I mean, you could do a case study with social services, what was going on, you know, it was, it was really, really bad. So I actually, as 10, Dave, wrote my dad a letter and said, look, dad, um, you know, we don't feel that safe. Mum's drinking. If you don't come and pick us up and get us, I'm going to kill myself, wow. you know. It was that, it was that bad because what had happened was it was the summer holidays, Dave, and I'd gone down and spent a week with my dad and my auntie and it was really nice, you know, so it was like almost like safe, you know, yeah. lovely time. We'd gone down to Dim Church yeah. down on the South Coast. Um, and he was your protector as well. So there was a yeah. level of safety there that you felt. And probably, I mean, he was with your mum as yeah. well. There's a there's a level of um, not feeling protected if she was drinking all the time as well. Yeah, 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 definitely. So, so I'd wrote him a letter um, when I was ten to say, you know, and and to be fair to my dad, he did come up and get us, you know, and and we come back to London with nothing and. This was the confusion with both my parents. Obviously, my mum, I loved her pieces, and I had, um, you know, she calls me great harm, but I loved her. My dad, I he he actually brought us up on his own. You know, yeah. he actually brought us up, and he'd done this job on his own. But I had all this stuff that no one knew about that I witnessed him do. So that sort, I loved my dad. You know. Because he did. He looked after us. He gave us all this. But I also had all the secrets, Dave, of what he'd done to my mum. And I was the only one who knew. And I suppose that's why I wanted to write the book, was to no one else knew. I mean, my dad, my dad it, it's like someone, you you probably get it because I know you, you know, you've got a lot of followers. Someone wrote me a, a thing on um, on Instagram saying, oh, this book the, the the woman always gets blamed, blah, blah, blah. And I, I said, this is not blaming anyone. This is just telling a story. I'm not, my mum and dad were both quite unwell people at times. If you read the book, um, this is not, I'm not blaming anyone. This is just what happened to me as a yeah. boy. And I think that's the strength of the book, Dave. There, there's no blame. No. And I can hear by, by how you're explaining it, you have compassion. For both of them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what's so lovely about you, John. You know, there's no judgment there. And even at the beginning, you when you started talking about um how your dad treated your mum and you said, Oh, my dad bless him, and I thought, Oh, that's lovely. You know, you, you kind of accept them individually for, for the good, you know. And now you're saying he brought you up independently from the age of ten. Is amazing, but also for for you at that age to hold all that baggage, you know, like mm. from a young age, you're holding all this trauma and baggage is a, a lot to um, manage. A hundred percent, Dave, and and this is why I do believe, you know, that someone's whatever whatever anyone's belief in, whether I've been given a gift or someone's looking out for me, you know, to to go through all this like um, childhood trauma. Then to go with my own addiction and my own mental health issues and where I came and and to get out of it reasonably sane most of the time and be able to tell a story 
that, you know, someone must be looking out for me. I, I really have got this thing, Dave, that, yeah. you know, some, I, 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 if you like, it's whether you believe in God or whatever, but it's almost like someone said to me, look, I'm going to give you all this trauma as a boy. You know, I'm going to, you're going to go through all your addiction. You're going to come, but this has been given to you because you're going to then come out the yeah. other end and, and write a book and tell a story. Yeah. And you're going to help other people. Yeah, I, I relate to that. And I, I, you know, like I've mentioned in my book about my mum and the relationship I had with her when she left, you know, and at 14 years old to open a letter and not even have a hug from your mum explaining the reason why was tough for me. But when she died a couple of weeks later, um, I, and it wasn't even a dream. It was like a vision. Um, like a semi-conscious thing in the night that I met her again. And it wasn't long after that that I stopped. And I feel her around me all the time. And I believe, um, as you say, whether you believe it or not, um, that um, I've been given this gift as well. Uh, and that's said without arrogance, like y- you are, it- it's a blessing in a way that I've had this experience in my life. And it and it's like what what we do with it is powerful. And you know, even in the last half now you're speaking, I can see the gift you have, mate. Like it's 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 so powerful. And you should be proud of yourself, mate. I do want to ask you as well, um, when you came down um from Scotland, when your dad picked you up, how did your mum react to that? Um yeah, I mean, it's another good question. Do you know what? It probably she nothing. She she was so she was so far gone, you know, with the drinking, Dave, that she didn't react. She never, you know, because I think the only thing that she could have done, you know, if she wanted her kids back, was to try and get sober. Yeah, but, but she never did. Um, you know, um. We used to go up and see her uh, so, uh, holidays. Um, so whenever Christmas, Easter, summer, you know, to give my dad a break. I mean, you know, and I'm not blaming anyone, but you know, would you? Would I send my kids up to the summer holidays? You know, to my alcoholic, you know. But that's just the way it was. It was like the times going up there. You know, you talk about growing up. I used so say we used to go up for the summer holidays. Yeah, my dad would give me I don't know how much it was, maybe for the six week shopping money. I can't even remember hundred quid. I don't know how much it was in the eighties. Fifty quid, hundred quid. My instructions were: you do not give that to your mum. Mum, you know, you do the shopping. Yeah. So I'm eleven or twelve years old. You do, and I'm laughing about it now because it's um. And my mum would know that I had the um, shopping, uh, the money. You yeah. Know? Um, there was also another story, Dave, that I used to, we used to, and I talk about it in the book. So we used to get the coach up from, um, from Victoria to Buchanan Street in Glasgow. And as it was coming in to the, to the bus station, I'd be looking out the window because I knew she'd be there just to see if she was pissed or not. Yeah. You know, and the real like, oh. And then what we'd have to do, if she was pissed, I'd have to get a cab because we'd get a bus and the cab would maybe take a week's because the cab was quite a lot because you had to 
go boundary charges that you know the cab say the bus was a pound the cab would be a tenner i don't know you know whatever it was and um but it would be better to be in a cab her maintained in a cab than be on this bus you know drunk and just shaming shaming me up you know um so unfortunately you know nothing changed and just just one point I just want to make there, which 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 kind of I think kind of like ties into what you say, Dave. So my mum got taken away. We got taken away from my mum when when I was ten. She died uh, when I was thirty seven. So twenty seven years, yeah, of still having my mum like shame shaming us and all that. And I I said to my sister, right which is a horrible thing to say. And it's a question I ask and ask clients. I said, what would have been better? Would it have been better if mum would have died when we was 10? Or would it have been better that she had another 27 years of shaming us? It's a horrible. And we, but my, my sister said it had been better if she'd have died then, because then at least we could agree. Now I asked that to my, clients and most of them say it'd be better you know if they'd have gone to put us out of our misery but to be put her out of her misery and that's what addiction does it yeah you know you talk about alcoholism the most evil unnatural what a question to ask Mm. but but it 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 just stopped that 27 years of trauma of of carrying on with it you know it's such a powerful question mate and you know i i i talk to sarah drage a lot she's amazing and um she quite often feels the guilt of of thinking she wishes her dad was dead you know right because because you're put through the misery of it aren't you yeah uh, and on paper, your parents are away with the fairies, carrying on doing what they're doing, blase, right? But for you, like from a very, very early age, um, you've had to live with this terrible addictive substance. But it's, it's the knock on effects that I talk about to people. You know, quite often when I work with my clients, I ask how old their kids are. You know, I go for the jugular as well. I don't muck about like you with that question. You know, I say, how old are they? Are you aware of um, the potential damage this is causing already? That um, the mummy wine o'clock culture uh, in front of them, it's like, oh, mummy's a bit anxious. She's having the the magic juice or the, you know, the wine and like from a a young age. and, And it's people, they, some people don't react kindly to it, but I don't care in a way because it needs to be said. You know, like hearing your story just, and saying like i wish we didn't have to experience that 27 years because what was that experience what what quality of relationship did you have it prolonged the misery in a way then added to it the older you got especially if you were drinking as well it's it's a double-edged sword as well isn't it yeah and and the thing is you know just leading on from that i i remember in the midst of my you know re- breakdown breakdown it's funny when i come in in 2003 there was still this thing about men talking about breakdowns you know i had a breakdown i'd lost my mind you know i drunk myself insane i was in a nut house a, a posh nut house day but it was still a nut house and i i there was either two i was either going to kill myself because i didn't want to give my girls 
what was given me. They didn't deserve it. Or, and luckily, I was in a place that was offering me recovery. You know, there was no, I, I am happy I was so unwell um, because it, it, there was either two choices, you know, with this sort of, if you got to a place like me, if you had a family of origin like me with the alcoholism, there's no, it's either black or white, mm. you know, it's either top yourself or, or recover it or carry on drinking. I, I couldn't drink anymore. It was either top yourself, what was going on in my head or recovery. There was no black and white, you know, and I only had to look at my family of origin. So my evidence yeah. was there. The you buck know. stops here with you is what yeah. you did. It's like I've got um, uh, a, a draw a line in the sand with it. Uh, and I, I just want to add to that as well. I mentioned about um, kids growing up um, with the mum and the wine o'clock. It's, it's not women as well, it's men. And, and what you've done there is you've drawn a line in the sand through your experiences uh, and knowledge about it as well. So when did you stop drinking, John? 2003. 17th of October, 2003. That's that fantastic, man. Day. Yeah. 19 yeah, years. You. Yeah, not celebrated 19 years in October, one day at a time. Yeah. Well yeah. done, mate. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And the, and the great thing is, Dave, my girls are now 21 and 22. My eldest daughter, she won't read the book because she thinks it'll make her too, too sad. But my youngest daughter, she she read it and she sent me. I, I've actually, I actually, because I, the great Nakoa, who we're both involved with, the National Association of Children of Alcoholics, um, I put something on their website, you know, uh, features. And, and, and at the end, I wrote the letter or the email my daughter sent me. You know, just blows my mind. And this sort of thing, that's all I needed. You know, I'm so proud of you, Dad. And, yeah. you know, when your daughter says, I'm so proud, I didn't realise this. And I like yeah. <laughs> And do you know? Do you know something? I was all since I've written the book. It, it's really interesting. I've always been really close to my daughters, but I've noticed another level of things they're sharing with me. Yeah, you know things that they maybe would have would go to their mother with, but I notice they're bringing things to me now, and I, and I'm just just that little bit of depth that they're bringing to me now which is really, really beautiful. It's priceless. Yeah, but I, I think there, John, is because you are more open to the universe. You, you've opened the doors and go, like, come in. You know, you're attracting that. I, you know, I, I don't want, I want to go into the law of attraction, but what I find with me is that um, when I was drinking, I was looking down at the floor with blinkers on. I, could, I would only see what I wanted to see. I would only let in what I wanted to let in because of the shame and the lack of self-worth and that. Yeah. And when I stopped drinking, I started to look within myself and I started to accept myself. Difficult in the beginning because I didn't know who I was. You know, it's like a snake shedding its skin. You have to start again. Mm. You know, I use the analogy of... Um, being in prison I, I drank for 40 years right so out after 40 years I was let free and I've walked out and everything's different I didn't recognize anything and I didn't know how I would fit in society because I was no longer that like you say I'd make people laugh with the banter down the pub with the football 
I'd be at the doors of the pub on a Sunday at midday and the landlord unbolt the door. Oh, hello, Glugs, in you walk in. Like and like a son. Yeah, knowing I was in for the whole session, all of a sudden, I've taken myself out of that uh, environment and I was like, who the hell am I? And I had to start to shape my life again, John. And what happened there was I become so much more open to so many more things, you know. Mm. So I can really relate, like your daughters. I can just feel how very proud they are of you. But hearing your backstory as well, they haven't had to experience that as well, which is a gift because you did draw the line in the sand. Mm. With the, the story of your generations, you've gone, no, I'm not doing this. To my daughters, to me, to my fam, I'm stopping it here. And that is the power of sobriety. You know, it's not all just about, oh, look at my skin glowing in the mirror and, and oh, yeah, it's all great. It, the, pa- the knock-on effect to everyone is huge, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we call it stopping the cycle. I, I took responsibility. You know, that responsibility, the buck stops with me. And it's really interesting. I was just thinking, though, when you said like that early recovery, you know, it's like things change. You notice the uh, leaves on the trees and yeah. the grass. But also the, the thing that I remember is the feelings that coming up. I remember sitting in rehab. I actually in rehab, you know, I got taken the piss by some of my peers, but but they actually went out and drank again. Um because all I'd done in rehab for the first, actually, the first week I was in rehab, I wasn't an alcoholic, yeah, because I didn't want to say that words. I didn't want to be like my mum. I didn't want to be, you know, shameful like my mum, you know. And after a week, I, I finally admitted I was an alcoholic, you know. It was almost like, you know, the denial had, had been broken and it was like, wow. The drink is the problem here. The drink is the problem. And when that came out, I actually just cried for the for the next two weeks in rehab. Just, you know, crying like a baby and probably crying like that eight-year-old. You know, you were saying about the, you know, the um the trauma just yeah. carrying all that back. Just, you know, letting it go, letting it go. And then feelings, you know, that. There's a great, there's a great saying. I love this saying. You, you know, in recovery, they say that you know the good thing about recovery is you get your feelings back. The bad thing about recovery is you get your feelings back. Yeah. I just love that saying. You know, yeah. because they're painful at the beginning. Because normally it's oh, there's a feeling coming on. I'll have a drink. I'll have a joint. I'll have this. You know. But no, it's about sitting with the feelings, you know. Um. Yeah, it's powerful, mate. And I found as well, um, when I stopped drinking, I reverted back to the 14-year-old standing there reading the letter because I hadn't developed emotionally from then. I really hadn't. I, I, you know, I got into this gang and they were really, really macho, you know, which I had steered away from before that. I was a bit, not a mummy's boy, but I was sensitive and... And I didn't like violence and I didn't like, you know, fighting other schools and that. I was the, the joke teller and, uh, come on, the, the peacemaker yeah. in a way. And when mum left and that, I, I kind of heard towards this group because they took me in and I felt accepted. 
right? And that's what gave me my sort of self-worth then because I thought, oh, I'm part of something here. And I've written in my book about becoming the character in this group. I wasn't the fighter, I was the drinker. You know, a bit like the usual suspects with Mr. Pink, Mr. Black, whatever. You know, yeah. I was the drinker. Um, and so I, I never used to really have to get involved in all the fighting and that. But when I stopped drinking, all of a sudden I was like feeling the feelings of that 14-year-old. You know, and sometimes I do a post with a picture of me as a kid. And um, it's it's so hard to to move on i've had a lot of therapy like you probably john that to try yeah. and unpick it and try and understand that it wasn't my fault the rejection you know it wasn't because i was a bad son or unlovable it was more a circumstance of the addiction and and uh you know i mean i say that i was talking about your side for my for me my mum dad didn't really drink but my mum met someone else so she's gone off and I felt the the um, rejection there, yeah, you know. Abandonment, yeah. But for you, your mum, it's like she met someone else, which was alcohol. So she's yeah. got her relationship. She's left you for, and that's why the title's so good. Alcohol stole my mum. Is is you've nailed it there, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. But it's how we feel about it, and I mean, you must have a lot of um, children of alcoholics approach you for support is how, how do you help them by telling your story or is how do you guide them? Because I talk to them and like, I only talk as the alcoholic or the addict or, or whatever you want to frame it, but how do you help them? It's interesting because all my clients are like, obviously families of alcoholics and addicts and, and the majority of them, I, I think, you know, the majority of them have have carried this role since they were like young. If you look at it, so on our assessment, it will say, did you grow up in an alcoholic home? And probably, I don't know, the number, maybe 80 percent will say yes. So they've carried this role, Dave, you know, of, of fixer, of rescuer. Yeah. Um, and we know that. You know, statistics, I think the last, you know, years ago think that I think they say 80 percent of people who who end up in addiction grew up in an alcoholic home. But then the other 20 percent might be they call it the toxic trio, alcoholism, domestic violence and mental health. You know, so I the way I work with them is to actually, you know, try and, you know, like you say, this wasn't your fault, you know, but it's hard. If you're, and it's it's acknowledging this to my clients when I come in, it's hard for you know you've had this role for forty years, you know, you know you've had this sort of role for a long, long time. Just like when, if you like, the first part of my career was an addictions counsellor. You've had this role of being an alcoholic for well, you I think you used the uh, forty years. And now you've got to try something else. I mean, that is hard. That's why we know, and and I say this to family members, and like what you say, I like that analogy for the jugular. I, the statistics of people getting clean and sober are tiny. Yeah, you know, people don't understand the power of addiction and alcoholism. You know, you you're talking about 
the years in so for my example i had my year 18 years of my own uh, addiction my own alcoholism the trauma that and then i had all the childhood trauma and I, i've been using this medication called alcoholism for 18 years to to help me with what had happened before and you want me to stop yeah you're yeah. you're mad isn't you <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want me to put down my medicine? Leave yeah. off. You know, and these what these are why the numbers are so so my actually I think the power, like, you know, I'm sure you'd agree, is just listening mm. and just like saying, Do you know what? It's okay you feel like that. I mean, I've read a million counts, you know, done theories, obviously trained as a counselor. You know, the the best thing you can do especially when you talk about addiction or families with addiction is do the simple paraphrasing do the simple normalizing people's feelings and then you've built the relationship to explore you know what's going on because you know my belief is you can have all the programs you know in the world and you know i've worked in lots of different treatment centers you know lots of you know 12 step uh, therapists to communities, uh, religious, I worked in a religious um, treatment center and, and all these like programs are all good. But what's more important, Dave, is the relationship yeah. between the professional yeah. and the, um, and the client, because if I trust you, I am going to open up. I am going to really um, explore. So it's just that basic. I, I hear what you're saying. I really hear what you're saying, and that's okay. That's so powerful, John. I'll give you a reason I understand that, is that when I stopped drinking, right, I I was invited along to um, a group circle, sharing circle, right, in Clapham uh, by this guy, Chris, who was um, a genius. And he held these sessions, and they, they were people that um, – well, I mean, I, I, my drinking was off the scale, but I had a warm roof over my head and a, a loving family and uh, support around me, but I was still caning a litre of vodka a night, right? These people had lost their kids, were homeless, and they were going 10 minutes at a time without a drink, right? And I'm sitting in this circle and people were sharing. And I was like, Jesus, this is horrific. Like, real trauma going on there of, real like unbelievable stories and at the end of the first session i went up to chris and i said how do you manage all this like what and he said i just listen that people you know that is the power of listening you know and i learned that i i studied to be a counselor for two years right and that was one of the biggest nuggets of gold that i learned from that is the listening abilities is huge to allow people to actually tell their story without any judgment and and to form that relationship of trust is so powerful and that's with my work i don't have any programs it's bespoke to each individual Mm -hmm. because i believe right that say you drank two bottles of wine a night and i drank two bottles our relationship with those two bottles are quite potentially quite different you know based on our background our childhood our environment um how why you're using it as a coping tool and why i'm using it and and that's the thing if you can sort of break it down and um work with someone who trusts you that's the power of success Mm. to me yeah without a doubt i mean 
I've uh, like you. I've had a lot of personal uh, like therapy. I remember I've had a couple of bad counselors, and I remember going in for a session once. And I mean, at the end of the session, I was counselling her. But the reason I'm saying that, Dave, is I just didn't trust, you know, from the beginning, and especially like who I work with, families of alcoholics. It's always about the alcoholic, and the families don't get to a word. So when I come in. The, the tool I use with the families of alcoholics is say, look, I don't want to hit because they'll come in and they'll want to talk a lot about their loved one, the alcoholic. And I say, look, I don't want to hear about them. I want to hear about you. you How are you yeah. in all of this? And yes. turn it around. Yes. And, and it's so powerful because, as I say, a lot of the times they want to come in. I'd say 80, 90% of my clients are mothers. They want to come in and fix their son, yeah. fix their daughter. Yeah. And I say, look, we can't fix them, but this is about you. And that's why I, I've got clients who have been coming for many, many years. It's that a lot of the time, because we know with active addiction, it's very live. Yeah. Um, so this is just the space to actually express what's happening for you, what's yeah. going on for you. I get that, mate. I, I um, was the husband of someone who had cancer three times. And no one ever really asked how I was. So I always remember that, how I felt. as, And I didn't even feel like I could even talk about it. So I really think the power is right there, John. Like like to ask the rescuer how they are because they're in practical mode. They're in the mode of I need to help them get over this. And, And they sacrifice all their feelings and put it on the back burner. Right. But when you actually ask them, how are you? The tears come out. It's like, mm. oh, I've never been asked that before. Yeah. Actually, I don't know how I am. I've not checked in with myself. And all of a sudden, it's like, God, there's, there's some real stuff to work with there. And it's mm. so important yeah. as well. Yeah. And also, you know, they'll, they'll say, um, well, if they stop drinking, I'll be okay. And I'll say, but what happens if they don't stop drinking? Mm. You know, really, and then that's like, uh, and then that that can get them in the feelings because yeah. it is, you know, you're almost like, you know, yourself. You know, whatever happens to them, it's that you know, it, it's like how you're feeling is depending on how someone else is going to be acting, and yeah, and and I bring it back down to like, you know, the statistics, and I I'm not here to scare anyone. I'm just saying. The statistics of people getting clean and sober are not great. You mm. know, you know, alcoholism, alcoholic deaths, the first year of the um, pandemic were up by 20%. Mm. You know, alcoholic deaths are on the rise. You know, it, it ain't going anywhere, this stuff. You mm. know, it, the numbers are, are terrible. So that's why it's important to for my work to keep the focus on the families how, how that simple question Dave how are you feeling yeah how does that make you feel you know and and I think you, you touched on you know my I mean we're, we're great so I work for an organization called Turning Point in London and, and I developed this family program I mean we run three family groups a week now we know that isolation is one of the biggest characteristics for for addiction or alcoholism, but also for families. And even more so for families, the shame of what the addiction has had in the families 
You put a load of families of alcoholics and addicts in a room and how they share with each other. I mean, they share with people who who were strangers to them when they come in things that they've never shared with to their family. Yeah. You know, because these people, there's no judgment they identify with. But but I do say to families of um, alcoholics, you know, it's brave. I'm asking you to come into a room with a load of people you've never met before and share with them the shameful family secrets that you've been holding for 20 years, yeah. you know. But once they get in and they get that identification, you know, it's it's so powerful, Dave. Yeah, I, I, I've i witnessed that myself, you know. I've witnessed that, you know, one guy, he, he hadn't spoken to his daughter for 20 years because of his alcoholism, right? And we encouraged him to write a letter and we said that even if you don't send it to her, write the letter and put it in a drawer because for yourself, that's cathartic. You know, a bit like you mm. writing your book, me writing mine. Like there were times I was writing chapters, bawling my eyes out in there. Do you know what I mean? It's like bringing it all back up, but you have to explore that. You have to explore those feelings, be able to go through them and move on. And the power of your work is immense, John, and your book, you've sent me it. I'm so grateful and I haven't had a chance to read it, but I'm going to. Um, before we finish, can you let everyone on this podcast listening know where they can find you, where they can buy your book? Um, how can they reach out to you if they need support? Yeah, sure. I mean, I so the books you can it's called Alcohol Stole My Mum, so it, uh, you can get it on the um, on our uh, web page on our um, which is w um, alcoholstolemymum.co.uk. I'm on uh, Instagram, Alcohol Stole My Mum, on Twitter as well. There's also an audio version of it, which which it took two weeks to do. I mean, that just re-traumatised me, Dave. Oh, audio. do you know what, man? I'm, I'm, <laughs> uh, people keep asking if I'm going to do an audio as well. Yeah, I, I can see that. But look, the thing is, mate, I'm going to put all the details as well in the show notes. Uh, and when I share this podcast as well. So I, I, people need to know about you, John. I think the last hour has been really, really powerful. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be so many people that, um, relate to your story and feel hope actually that they got somewhere to explore their feelings. And also like this cover Nakoa, the amazing, um, charity they are that we both have involvement with what a fantastic charity and organization to reach out to as as well right beautiful people yeah i mean hillary when i sent her the book you know she gave me a quote which is on the book as well yeah just the work they do you know just where children can phone up you know yeah, hillary, free helpline isn't there ah uh, beautiful work you know hillary and pierce and yeah. um yeah no you know josh. really great josh yeah josh and um Laura and uh, the rest of them, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm doing. Are you doing the charity walk next year? Aren't you? Yeah, I see. How I am actually. My, I see how my knee is, but yeah, I am. Oh, mate, I'm doing, doing it, it as well, so I'll give you a piggyback. Nah, they, uh, yeah, I think. Yeah, no, I think I'll be doing it. I, yeah. I can't really. I used to run marathons to prove I was an alcoholic, so surely I can do a walk. To, yeah, uh, we're, we're doing it, mate. We're doing it. Um, I've got my Definitely. sweatshirt through the post as well, so. 
I'm really looking forward to that. And I, I love what they do. You've, you uh, attended a charity football match yesterday with um, Callum Best was playing and Jermaine Defoe. That was at Bournemouth, right? Yeah, yeah, it was great. It was great. It was uh, it's the first time I've um, I've uh, met Hillary. So, because obviously, you know, with COVID and all that. So it was great. I had a lovely chat, big hug. Laura and a few of the other people who I've met on um, just on Zoom. So it was just lovely connecting yeah. with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Amy so, Dixon was there. and um, Amy she, come up, yeah, Amy. Yeah. Amy she's yeah, she's yeah, been so. on my podcast as well, telling her story. So it's such yeah, important work. Yeah. yeah, I had to come up. I'm going to try and uh, – I know you've got your uh, Christmas do it in my manner, Dave. Yes, mate, right so when you grew up. up. <laughs> right when I grow up in the heart of it, mate. So yeah. I might, um, yeah, I've seen it on the website. So I might pop down there, mate. Oh, I'd be you. so lovely to see you, John. And again, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a really powerful hour for me as well, um, talking to you. So I'm so grateful, John. All the best for the future, mate. And good luck with the book. Uh, and I hope to see you soon. Definitely. Thanks a lot, Dave. Have a great day and thanks for the invite. Yeah. Cheers, mate. Pleasure, mate. Take it easy. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. Don't forget you can also order a copy of my number one best-selling book, One for the Road. It's full of helpful and useful tips to help you stop drinking. You can order it today off Amazon. You can also find me for extra support on my Instagram account at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.